0: It's uh, a real honor to be here. Uh, I've been waiting for this invitation for a long time, so, uh, so it's all pent up. But um, to piggyback on that story, uh, it was, I think, two years ago that we officially became friends on Facebook. So, you know, that's serious, right? And they sent me a message this week that it's our friend anniversary, and he didn't say anything. So, it's, um, I don't either. So, if I'm your friend, and I don't do the friend anniversary thing, but um, but I remember just a few months before, we were uh, overwhelmed in our church. We took over. Uh, our church is 102 years old. It started in 1916, right on 23rd and Pine Street, and then they moved out to North Wilmington. And uh, uh, it was just overwhelming to know that. Um, Probably six or seven years ago, uh, the world and some churches believed we should have shut our doors. We didn't have uh, much money at all. We were in severe debt. Uh, We went from a church of three to four hundred. And on my first Sunday, we had thirty two people, faithful people that stayed through the storm. And uh, we just believed that our dreams were bigger than our memories. Our church had some great uh, things in the past. Uh, It was known as First Assembly of God, if you know that, and we changed it to New City Church. We just wanted our name to mean something, and we wanted our vision to carry us. And so we've been able to open a clothing closet for people twice a month. Uh, We literally are thinking we have to open it more because they line up. Uh, We give them uh, job training if they need that. We help them find an interview somewhere. Uh, This, just in a few weeks, we're going to bless all these families that come through our Hope Closet. We're going to give them a big... Christmas dinner and our church is so generous. We're buying all the presents for their kids and going to surprise them with that. Uh, and we're just constantly trying to be in the neighborhood right there. I, I believe that if our doors should ever close, that the churchy people shouldn't miss it. It should be our neighborhoods that miss us. And that's that's what we're trying to do. We're in a unique spot in North Wilmington. Uh, we're right, literally the city line goes through our cul-de-sac in the front of our building. And so we're kind of county, kind of city, but uh, we believe in our city. We believe that even though the world writes us off and says murder town and uh, one of the most violent small cities in America, that it doesn't just make us angry. Our anger should turn into something. So we, we wanted to be a church that took that and said that doesn't have to be what defines us forever. So we, we, we prayed as a church and didn't know how big our prayers were. But we said, you know, God, we want the violence to stop. We want it to, to go down. We want homelessness to stop. We want people to find hope again, to find that it's okay to not be okay, to come in our doors and say, I don't have to have it all together, but they'll find people that love them, multi-generational, multi-ethnic, all all kinds of different walks of life. And in those prayers, I said, God, this is a really big vision. And I kind of felt like maybe I was the only church that cared about our city, because there are a lot of churches in our city. I met a lot of those pastors, and they also didn't return my phone calls. And so... Uh, but I, I just would pray almost like these selfish prayers. So I'll just be honest. Sometimes I wanted to pray, like, God, I want New City to be the solution. And then he knocked me in the head and said, I don't think so. You can be part of it. And so I just remember praying, and then I got this email from this guy named Derek Park saying he wanted to meet and that there was a church being planted in our city. And probably a year before that, I would have got really jealous. And I was have I don't want to talk to this guy. He's going to take people from my church. Or And so I just... It really humbled me, and I said, you know what? I'm praying that prayer, and God's answering it. It doesn't have to be me that has that answer. And so our church, we believe in you guys. We do. We want more churches in our city. We want I want a church down the block from us because there's people down the block that may not come to our church, but they'll come to that church. And I think as long as there's unsafe people in Wilmington, we need plenty more churches. So. Uh, up in North Wilmington, off of Lee Boulevard, we're cheering for you guys. We're praying for you guys. We love your pastor and his family. The only thing I don't like about him is that he is a Dallas Cowboy fan. So, but you can be division leaders, but we're reigning Super Bowl champions. So I'll just—I'm an Eagles fan. So that was the one mark, I guess, in our friendship that we have contention over. But uh, I don't text him when we beat them. I give it a couple days, but. When you guys beat us, he texted me like, that day. Might have been the next morning to ask how I was. But, um, but, you know, I've uh, been pastor there uh, five years as the lead pastor. But we came in 2010 right after we got married. We were on staff as youth and kids, and we did some worship and some media. And that line at the bottom of our job description says, anything else the senior pastor needs, we did that stuff. And uh, we didn't really feel called i guess right away it was almost like uh this position's open and let's see where it takes us but man i I remember the first time i drove down concord pike uh and back then i called it concord pike because i wasn't from here yet but i I just felt an overwhelming love for our city and there's nothing that's going to take us away from here. i tell our church all the time it has to be an act of god for us to move away from here because i believe in longevity and being here for the long haul. So we've been there 5 years planting seeds and we're just now starting to see little sprouts come up and it's worth it. And so you guys are at the beginning stages so the investment is worth it. You're not investing in temporary things. This is eternal kingdom stuff. So you just keep going, keep plowing through and the Bible even promises if you don't give up you will reap a harvest. So you've got to believe that and you've got a little bit more experienced farmers right up the street and we're we're here to help you guys and uh, we love your church. We love what you're doing. So, again, if you guys ever need anything, uh, I'm not saying this is a shallow thing. You, you call on us, and if we can help, we'll do it. You know, we're, we're there for you guys. So we're not at competition with each other. There's not going to be a new city section of heaven and then an epiphany section. And then uh, we're all going to be together. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to be surprised at that when they get to heaven. But we're all going to be together. Um, so I do, uh, do want to give you uh, a message this morning. I was, you can ask your pastor. I was contemplating which direction to go. So I just let the Holy Spirit lead me today. Um, but I love the book of James. I don't know if he's preached out of it, but I have. And uh, I don't have 13 weeks like it took us in our church. So I'm just going to summarize it all in one. No, I'm not. I'm going to take I'm going to take one passage. Uh, but we took a journey through this book uh, as a church. It we went verse by verse, section by section, and it really launched us, especially our younger Christians and their faith to the next level, because that's what James is about. It's about faith and it's about works. Um it's the message of the book of james now listen It's not that we work to earn our salvation because there's nothing you can do to earn it as soon as you try You're invalidated, but I believe that we work because we are saved because we have faith now we start working And so it's it's these kinds of things and I, I would probably add in other words about faith and works And making progress because if you sit down and read james, you're going to feel like the worst christian ever because all the things in you are like, I don't do that right, I don't do that right. But James slowly says to us, listen, it's faith and works and you've got to make progress. You've got to be better tomorrow than you are today. And so it's, the, it's these kinds of things that he's going to tell us that makes us doers of the word and not just hearers. So what James is trying to do with this book, he's writing to churches. He's not writing uh, to everybody. He's very specific in how he writes. He's saying, I want you to live your life dependent on God and to avoid the, the pull of the world. He's saying this to first century Christians. He says, the world's going to pull you and drag you and entice you. And you're going to be living in hostile environments. It kind of sounds like our faith today. We're in a hostile environment where it's not okay anymore to say what is true and what's not true. It's not okay to preach anymore. It's not okay to say that is sin. And it, 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 he's saying, you've got to keep your eyes focused on me. And so really what I think God is saying is he's using James to say this is the what and the why of our Christian faith. It's like he's saying this is the way to life to meaning to depth This is the way to purpose to the fullest life possible and james will lay it heavy on us And he does it because he loves us But listen god never grows weary of carrying us home never He's about our progress to make us more like him. Not so much hear me about our perfection He's about progress So I want to read a passage today. I think it's one of the most important in James. But if I was here another week, I might pick another one and say that's the most important. But today, this is what I think is one of the most important things that James says. It's at the end of chapter one. I'll read it and then we're just going to kind of go through it. That's what I do. We read it and we go through it. James 1.18, he says this. He, he's talking about God. He says he chose us, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. He says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, even on Facebook, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the what? The word that's planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I can just say that, amen, and go home. We can have early lunch. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face In a mirror and after looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this not forgetting what he has heard But doing it he will be blessed in what he does Now what I also love about james is this james that wrote this book is the little brother of jesus I always do this poll any older brothers in here. That's me any older brothers? Now, where's the younger siblings? Do we have any younger siblings? Now, older siblings, if my younger brother came up to me one day and said that he was the savior of the world, I'd knock him out. Or tell him that there must be something wrong. Or he ate something bad. So James did not believe in Jesus until Jesus rose from the dead. Didn't believe in him. It says that his brothers, his mom, well, his mom was always faithful, his brothers and sisters just thought he was crazy. That's why he didn't do a lot of ministry in his hometown. So James is writing this stuff saying, now I believe. And it's very interesting that James is almost like a commentary on Jesus' most famous message, the Sermon on the Mount. You can almost, word for word, kind of see some parallels. And so the book of James only mentions Jesus' name two times. But if you're not careful because of that, we forget about it too. We forget that this is what Jesus would expect of us. So here's what Jesus says based on what James just said, or vice versa. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this about wise and foolish builders. He says, "Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand." Now I'll add these words for emphasis. The same rain came, the same streams rose, and the same winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell with a great crash. What James is telling these churches and what he's telling us is that we need to build our lives and our church community together on a solid foundation. By becoming people who don't just do what we think is right, but become doers of the word. I love in 10 years of full time pastoring. Now, I love when people say, well, what is God saying to me? And I just want to kindly hand them a Bible because that's what he says. There's no. Circumstance I think in life not I think I know there's no circumstance in life that we can't find an answer in here It might not be an exact verse like don't type in. What does god say about my boyfriend? No, it's you you will find a story. You'll find a character. You'll find a parable You'll find something that has to do with this And you do that in the midst of facing trials and temptations and persecution and difficulty which james just talked about Before he talked about following the word. He says you put your life on the rock He's very concerned That the people in these churches, and I think it it fast forwards 2,000 years now, that they might be deceived about their relationship with God. And I think that concern has to resonate with us today. That there is a concern that we think that we're building our lives on the rock when we're actually building it on the sand. And when trials and temptations, which are God-ordained, I wish I could preach that one, but... When, when storms come, the first thing we say is, well, the devil's out to get me or God's mad at me or I did something wrong. And, and really, I think he's just helping us to see that we can stand on anything as long as it's built on the rock. So before James kind of gets into, I, I mean, you'll see this transition in James as you keep reading. He kind of gets into these lashings. He just hits us one after the other, one after the other. But we forget verse 18. We jump from trials and temptations. We go right into hearers and doers. But I love verse 18. He says that God chose us, chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. What is James saying? He says that God has chosen us for his own good pleasure, for his own good wisdom. He is choosing you and me to reconcile all things to himself. He, he asks us to help him do that. The church, a, a beautiful picture of the church. Now, there's some that, that don't get it, but some that are really trying hard. The church, I think, is meant to be a snapshot of where God wants to take the rest of the world. That we should be the most hope-filled people. We should be the most joyful, the most peaceful, the most loving. And that when people step into that space, they should say, man, this is, this is what the kingdom of God should look like. Even if it's just for a moment and they have to go back to the mess, but they get a snapshot. I think the church is kind of like the model home in a, in a new neighborhood. People want to know what the home's going to look like. I don't know about you, but my, my parents had a house built when I was younger, and everyone wanted to go see the model home. And that's what the church should be like. It should be the model home for what heaven should look like. And James says, this is who we are. This is your identity. He's pointing to this because he knows that for our character to be changed, to be transformed, which is the rest of the book of James, he needs a vision and a picture to give to them of what it could look like. So here's, here's how I put it. How do we compel our children... To take lessons for an instrument or to play a sport. Now, my son is, he's only six years old, and he thinks, you know, he's the next great baseball player, but, you know, T ball's really just kids running around throwing dirt at each other. But he's a rule follower, so he is a first baseman till he doesn't like being first base anymore. But I, I knew that there was going to be, I wanted him to play some sports because I love the team mentality and some discipline and learning how to interact and listen to a coach. And, and so I thought T ball would be a great start. And so what I didn't do is say, hey, let's play baseball and let's go sit in our living room and let's read the rule book together. Let's let's talk about umpiring and strike zones. Let's watch this guy do pitch count. And no, what did I do to make him fall in love with baseball? I took him to a baseball game. I took him to a baseball game. I I want him to smell the grass I wanted him to see the players. I wanted him to get close enough because we went to the Blue Rock single A, not Phillies. He's not ready for that. And they're not good anyway. I'm not ready to take them there anyway. We'll wait till they get better. But I took him there, and it took him close enough to the dugout, and I knew one of the guys, that knew one of the ball boys, so Parker got like three or four baseballs to take home. He like sleeps with those things, and, and I keep telling him, now listen, every game we go to, you're not getting three or four balls. You might You might get one, but I'm probably going to have to catch it for you. But he fell in love with the game. He fell in love with the Wilmington Blue Rocks, and he fell in love with how do you play the game, and we still, if it could be freezing, it was snowed last week or the week before, he wanted to play baseball outside. That's what we do. How do we compel our kids to play an instrument? What my mom did, she took me to a concert. She took me to this beautiful symphony, and I fell in love with the alto saxophone. I wanted to play it, and practice didn't seem as harsh anymore. You give them a vision of what it can be. You do this so that when trials and hardships of practice come, they still want to do it. So here's what James is going to say before. Now, you say me now. He's about to lay into us. But what he's going to say to us right now, he says, only beauty is going to transform. It's not rules. Rules don't transform. We can try to follow the rules of faith, but your heart is only ever going to be stirred and transformed of what could be. So James, in the middle of talking about trials and temptations, before he tells you to be a doer of the word, he says, you are the first fruits of all that God created. Now he's going to spend the rest of this letter admonishing us to live like Jesus asked us to live. And to build our life on the rock. So he says this in verses 19 to 21. My dear brothers take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak. And slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. And humbly accept the word that is planted in you. Which can save you. So he hasn't really gotten into the meat of it yet. James is kind of setting us up. The first thing that he addresses is that this community was not living in the light of their identity and their destiny. What were they struggling with? It wasn't something big. He says, you're struggling with not speaking. With speaking and then listening, and you're struggling with anger. And this anger is actually being revealed in your what? In your mouth. And it's not pleasing to God. I think this is a nice paraphrase. He says, this behavior and this anger in your life is not something that God approves of. In fact, this kind of behavior, if you don't get it under control, it's going to spoil your health and your witness to the community entirely. It's not just about angry outbursts. Now, let's not act like our preschoolers are the only ones that have angry outbursts. Because all it takes is left lane, close the head, please merge. And then I'm the first one to merge. I'm just letting you know. I merge when the sign tells me to merge. Who, who waits? Who waits to the very I thought so? That will cause an angry outburst in my car. Which now I have to watch because my kids will also say, oh, maybe he could just put on his stupid blinker. I'm like, whoop, I shouldn't say that. So but it's not just about the outburst that's underneath. It's all that resentment and pain and hatred that James is talking about because it builds up over time and it energizes the outburst. Some of us, I think, are angrier than we would ever care to admit. And we've denied it. We've justified it. And James says, you've got to get it under control. It's the very thing that will spoil our witness. We think if bad theology is going to spoil or if our church isn't warm enough or if it doesn't have clean bathrooms. If people walk in and we're angry with each other or we're mad at how the Christmas tree looks on the stage. I'm not at my church now, but I had that this morning. I'm like, you know, people are about to get saved. We have brand new visitors this morning. And, and they're like, oh, the tree's a little crooked. I say, you know, go fix it. That's just, if that's what you're going to be angry about, then I, I don't, I don't, we don't have time to be angry about stupid stuff. I would love to tell him, hey, let's be angry that there's three people right now that came that might not know Jesus. Let's get angry if they don't give their heart to Jesus today. Oh, yeah. So what he says is, get rid of or take off that filth. Anyone have a mud room in their house, or is that just like a central PA thing? I grew up in central PA. Mud room. I don't, it's okay. Someone's like, what's a mud room? It's not a room full of mud. My grandma had a mud room, and really, what it was was her nice way of saying, take off your nasty shoes and your coat before you step on my carpet. That's what the mud room was. And so she was so worried about the mess and the dirt that would get carried in. And she's in heaven now. And I guarantee you, she's cleaning in heaven. That's just how she was. But you would take—I don't—you could be the president of the United States of America or the Queen of England, and you better take your shoes off in the mudroom. So we're we're so worried about messes and dirt. And James says, "Get rid of moral filth." And and I would think he's saying, shouldn't we be more concerned about the mess that we bring into the house of God? Because If we think we can run all over this house and claim to be followers of Jesus and be messy and smear that mess, then he says you've got to get rid of it. Now, he doesn't just tell us to get rid of it. He tells us to put something on. But he says humbly accept or receive. He says you have to receive something in its place. We need to immediately put on the word of God. He took this concerning behavior and he took it straight to the heart. He says it's, it's a submission to the gospel problem. He doesn't go into detail about the kinds of anger. He doesn't give 10 steps to overcome your anger. He gets past it and he goes to the heart. Basically, what he's telling me is that you're angry. You're speaking in a way that's ungodly and it does not please God. So receive the gospel in a fresh way. Submit yourself to the word of God. Humbly put it on because it's the only solution to the problem that you're facing. Period. That's the gospel. That's where James starts as he explains how you build your life. On the rock we turn away from sin and we receive the gospel and I would say repeat as necessary Turn away from sin receive the gospel wash rinse and repeat If you're left to yourself, you cannot and will not please god. You can't do it There's nothing that you could do that's going to make him love you any more or actually love you any less It's based on his grace that he gave to us and our faith that enacts that God made a way for us to be accepted and to please him and it's the gospel of jesus christ We can't lose the power of the Word of God, and it's power to save us from ourselves. So what James is saying, a reminder again, he's concerned that this church, these groups of churches, us today, that we're deceived. That we think we're building our lives on the rock, but it's actually on the sand. So verse 22, very simply, he says, do not merely listen to the Word, and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. I mean, I, I really wish I was in the room when he wrote this because I, I he probably wrote this angry. Like, you know, when grandma's doing it, write you an email and they forgot to take the caps lock off and you think they're yelling at you. That's not OK. That was my grandma. I was like, what is she yelling for? But you, he says, don't just listen to it because he says, listen, he says, don't just listen to it. Do it. He says, if you don't listen to it and don't do it, then you deceive yourself. The people in these churches, listen, the, the, the thing about James is these are pretty established churches that he's writing to. They're healthy. And he says, you better listen and do what the word says. And he says, I think you're deceived whether you think your faith is genuine or not. You think you're pleasing to God. You think you're in right standing, but you're not. You think you're right with God because you're a hearer of the word. They profess to agree with what they hear. They come to church. They hear the pastor. They hear the elders teach the word of God. They even nod in agreement. They sing the songs, but he says your life is full of bad fruit. Your life is void of obedience to what you're hearing, and your heart is filled with anger and jealousy, and it's spilling out into the mouth, and it's wicked. He says you're blind to your own self-deception. You are unaware that you are building your life on the sand. So what would it be like if we were deceived this way? I am the kind of, I ask these big theological questions that people get mad at, but... What would it be like if we were deceived this way? What would be some indicators in our life? How would we know whether you and I, not just these ancient scriptures, but they're alive today. How do we know if we're building our life versus the rock or the sand? How can we tell if we've submitted ourselves to the word? Well, James, like his brother, gives us a picture. In verses 23 and 24, he says, Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And after looking at himself, he goes away and he immediately forgets what he looks like. And it took some in-depth study, and I'm glad we did a long series on this because I was able to take my time. I used to feel like I'm going to look at myself in the mirror, and if I got a big gash on my face, I'm not going to forget about it. But James was writing to this first century audience, and mirrors were not everyday objects. People were actually, this might surprise you, but most people were unfamiliar with what they actually looked like. People had to tell them, listen, your hair's messed up. Let me, let me just I lick my finger and put, I'll fix it for you. Today, some studies suggest, now this might be different for different genders. I'm just going to look at my paper so I don't accidentally look at somebody. Some studies suggest that we look in the mirror at least eight times a day. At least. Some of us are eight times before breakfast, but eight times a day we look at ourselves. This is a different culture. They didn't have mirrors. Hanging all over their house they didn't have I didn't understand till I got married a decorative mirror I want a mirror in this room to make it look bigger. I'm like we have a mirror in the bathroom we have one in the Bedroom, what do we need one in the living room? I so I just there's a mirror hanging in our dining room when she's right it makes the room look bigger, but I don't do my hair in that one. I don't shave in that one. I just I don't touch that one I don't get fingerprints on that one. It's just She's not here, so I won't get in trouble (laughs) But but at least eight times a day we look at ourselves In the mirror and now even the mirrors that the elite or the rich would have they were not smooth glass and it did not have a very clear reflection The image that they would actually see would be really distorted and it would be blurry So when they saw it, it really didn't leave a lasting impression They wouldn't they would see the blurry reflection. They would not be impacted and they'd walk away And in that moment, james hits it on the he says you forget what you looked like and what you saw So I'm just going to be very honest. I think for some of us, our Bible is like that first century mirror. For some of us, our Bible is like a first century mirror. I love you enough to tell you this. It's not an everyday object for us. We're unfamiliar with what Jesus looks like because we aren't familiar with his word. One of my favorite preachers as a kid used to say, if you want to know the will of God, then you know the word of God. What does God want me to do? It's in here. What should I do in this situation? It's in here. How should I pray? It's in here. One of the number one questions Jesus' followers asked him is, how do we pray? And he just laid it out in like this 15-second prayer. I love that. Because I'm an introvert. I don't have like these emotional experiences where I pray for hours and hours. And you're like, you're a reverend. You're supposed to. No, I, I pray throughout the day. It's very short. I call them shotgun prayers. I just... There are some times where I need to intercede, and I pray for our missionaries, and I'll get woken up in the middle of the night, and I'll pray, and that happens. But man, it's just, I love when Jesus was approached, and they said, Son of God, how do we pray? And he's like, our Father who art in heaven, da, 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 amen. And he moves on with his day. I'm like, I love that guy. <laughs> and so it's, we're unfamiliar with what Jesus expects of us, yet we won't read his stories. I think if Jesus, I think it was John Gray who said this recently, if Jesus were here today, and, and Bishop Jake says this as well, two of my favorite preachers, he says if Jesus were here today, he would be a filmmaker. Because at that time they didn't have film or didn't have Hollywood, so he told stories. And I think also, just to piggyback on it, I think we'd have to teach Jesus how to do church. He, we'd be mad that he wouldn't come here. But see, we don't, we're unfamiliar with what Jesus looks like and what he expects because we don't spend time in his word. Now we hear it. But James says it doesn't leave a lasting impression on your heart. It's blurry and it's distorted. I love, I call them baby Christians. And I'm not knocking baby Christians. They're some of my favorite people. Because they'll come up to me after a service and and I think it's a familiar passage. I've memorized it. I know like three different versions. I know the Greek behind it. I'm not trying to impress you. I'm just saying I've read it a few times. And they'll come up and they'll say, man, I never knew that. I didn't even know that was in the Bible. Or the opposite thing, they'll say, I thought the Bible said that God helps those who help themselves. I'm like, no, no, we need to, let's go to my office real quick. You know, better let's go get some coffee. Because the Bible doesn't say, well, my grandma, I said, well, your grandma was wrong. And if she's here, don't tell her I said that. But I I love the innocence when people hear something and they're like, I had no idea. Or they hear the story of Jesus said, this is how Jesus wants us to forgive. And I tell them a story, and like, I thought it was 21 steps. I had to read 18 books. I had to go through this class. And I said, no, this is what we do. It doesn't leave a lasting impression. It's blurry and it's distorted. We look at it, we walk away, and we forget because we don't look at it with intention and purpose. So what do we do? We gather on Sundays. We hear the word, and if I'm honest, sometimes we receive some therapeutic comfort, and then we walk out the door. We're gone, and we have forgotten what we've heard. And when James says, goes away and immediately forgets, it's, it's not a Greek word that just means to not remember. Literally, what he's saying is, it goes beyond not remembering. It also means that you actually made a choice to discard what you heard. You purposely didn't give attention to it. You come, you hear, you leave. And I, I sense it because I, I feel the weight of it. Every, the weight of the sermon is real every week, and I get, I can't help it. Even when I'm not preaching at my church, and there's a guest coming, I'm still up at like four thirty in the morning. Because I feel like I, this is a word that somebody needs. And I don't preach reactionary. I just preach the gospel and I know the Holy Spirit will do it. But, man, there's some days where I feel like I don't want them to come and to hear and to say amen and then to not do anything about it. Now, when I was young in ministry, man, I love when people say, oh, that was a great message, Pastor. Now, in the back of my head, I'm like, if it was so great, please change your life and do it. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to see. I want to say, okay, if, that's, if this message about forgiveness impacted you, then I know you haven't talked to your dad in two years. Then today you need to write them an email or a text. You need to call them. And I have enough, you know, five years in, I can say that kind of stuff now before they'd all leave. But now they like me. So, but you just, we're gone and we have forgotten. It means that you made a choice to discard it. And that, I think we don't, we know that's wrong, but we need to understand that that doesn't please God. If we think it does, if we think that we're right with God because we come to church and then forget and discard what we've heard, you are unbelievably deceived, just like James said. You are I'm telling you I can say this because he's not up here and he doesn't have the microphone But your pastor understands that the weight of the message is real It's very real. So it's in his heart. It's keeping him up at night. It's getting him up early in the morning He's probably like I do to my wife. I preach it to her all week and she's like "Shh, it's good Like just stop and i'm like no So it's just it it weighs i'm already this is how crazy I am. I'm already thinking about what we're doing in january That's how real and the weight is to me. It's not just a to show you and to tell funny stories. The weight is real. So you've got to hear it and then to do it. That's our that's our passion as a pastor is that you would do that. But then he ends it with some encouragement. He says, the man who looks intently into the perfect law. Into the word that gives freedom and he continues to do so. Not forgetting or discarding what he has heard. But doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. This is direct contrast to the person who heard it. It doesn't do it he gives a glimpse of a person who does build their life on the rock And in that just short verse there He gives us some keys To becoming a doer of the word This is real practical stuff. I don't know if you're a note taker, but this is a good spot To take notes because this is how we build our lives on the rock First of all, he says you look intently That's what you do. You look Intently, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law I love the the word for that phrase. It says it's soul penetrating absorption You search the scriptures This is the person who looks and searches for the message and what god wants to tell them with eagerness And so I just challenged our people with our our new vision for the year It's to be planted in the house of the lord and to be focused on his word I told them we're gonna we should be doing it already but to as a church community together to read through the bible And I already told people, I said, listen, some of you are OCD or type A in here, and you're going to do all 365 days so that you can check it off every day to say, I did it, Pastor. I did it. Look, I'm like, you're not getting gold stars. I'm letting you know right now you don't get a gold star. You don't get a free dinner. You don't, I I shouldn't have to bribe you to read. But I'm telling you, if you look intently, because sometimes when I was in Bible school, I would read through the Bible in a year to say that I did it. I was like, man, I checked it off. I read through all of it. And I don't know if you're this way, but I can actually read something. I'd be thinking about something else. My brain is just crazy like that. I can be reading the book of James and thinking about uh, dinner tomorrow, what I'm supposed to be getting for that. But you've got to look intently. So I challenge our people. I said, don't you dare read through the Bible in a year so that you can get a pat on the back at the end of the year. If you read through the Bible in a year knowing that, you know what, I might miss a few days. Life might get crazy. I might be sick. I might forget. That's okay. There's not going to be lightning bolts coming down out of heaven. But if you say, God, I really want to read through your word because I want to get to know you better. Then it will change your perspective. You look intently into the word. For this person, coming to the word of God is like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. This is what James is saying, each and every time. They are there for a reason, and they leave changed. Now listen, you can just grab you know, a Bible that has no commentary in it, no stuff on the side, if you want to read it like that. But I mean, there are so many study Bibles out there that are pretty inexpensive, In fact, you have a lot right here on your smart device. If you have a dumb phone, you don't have that. You need to go buy a physical book. But I need you to understand that even 30, 40 years ago, you now have at your fingertips more resources than the average theology student or pastor would have 30, 40 years ago. You have it at your fingertips. I mean, these people literally, my, my wife's grandfather would put off buying things for himself to save for theology books so he could become a better preacher. And I, I inherited some of those, and I cherished those. And people are like, "Why are you, print is dead. I'm like, get out of my office if you think print is dead. But it's just they would thirst, and he would give up stuff, and they would, they would deprive themselves of pleasure in life because he wanted to learn more. And we have it at our fingertips, and we're like, well, I'll just switch over to Facebook or Instagram or to go over here, and I'll do this. You have it at your – just look intently. And then he says, continue to do this. The writer of psalm chapter 1 he says but his delight is in the law of the lord And on his law he meditates day and night He is like a tree planted by streams of water Which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither whatever he does prospers It's almost the exact same thing. God said to joshua after moses had died And joshua was overwhelmed with what he's supposed to do as the new leader of the israelites You know what god told him he didn't tell him how he was going to win all of his battles He said, what I want you to do is to meditate on my law day and night. Don't look to the left or to the right, and I will help you. Because you will know my voice, and you will understand. You continue to do this. Now, some of you may have grown up in church. Some of you, might this might be your second or third week, or you're just new to this. But there's going to come a point where you've read that story before. Where somebody's going to walk up here and say, I'm going to preach on James chapter 1, and you're going to say, heard it, seen it. I'm going to preach about Joshua today. I I know more about him than he does. I've read about Moses. I used to do that going to pastor's conferences. I'm like, oh, he's going to do John 4. He's going to talk about the lady at the well, and this is what he's going to say. And I had to change my mentality. I said, Lord, I want to hear something new today. You might have heard it before. You might have heard about that character before. You may have memorized that verse years ago, and you're mad because the pastor does it in a different translation than you learned it in. See, so I can say things because I'm not at my church now. But you have may even have heard that kind of message before. I used to worry so much during the week that i have to have something new to say about these scriptures but then i preach through the book of ecclesiastes and it says in there there's nothing new under the sun somebody has preached this before somebody has said it before but maybe not in that context with our flavor on it but you got to keep you got to keep continuing to do this because you will learn something when you think this way i heard that before heard that sermon before heard that character before I know that verse I know where he's going to go then you have already stopped continuing to do this listen this book is not something dead that we observe and that we study and that we memorize to compile information i went to a bible college and i was mad and i even confronted the dean of academics and i said i don't want the bible listed as a textbook in our syllabus he we says well why i said no it's not a textbook it's not like a, lit- it's not a theology, as it's alive and it's active. I said, you, you pull down the weightiness of it if you just list it in these other books that you're supposed to read for class. I don't know if he listened to me, but I just felt convicted as this theology seemed Like, listen, I'm not, it's not the Bible and then expositors commentary and then the Greek lexicon. Like, it should, the Bible should not even be listed. on. It's something, to, it's alive. It's, you don't just sit there and observe it and study it and memorize it and break it apart. I knew some theology students, and it might sound funny, but it breaks my heart. I knew some theology students that the further they got into their theology, the less of a relationship they had with Jesus. They started knowing more about him and less getting just to know him. It's alive and it still changes hearts that are willing to be changed. And he says that he does this, he continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard. Listen, it's one thing to not remember what you read and what you hear. I'll just pull the cloak back from pulpit ministry. 80% of what I say each week will get lost in the synapses of my congregation's brains. In fact, they'll walk, you'll walk away today, you'll, you'll remember, but as you're going to your car and thinking about lunch and things, you're going to forget 80%. Of what you hear, which is why I always provide notes. I always tell people to write it down. Go back to it a day later. We do U version notes in our church. I give them email people, but I want them to get it written down because God always says, "Don't just listen." He says, He told them to write it on their hearts. In fact, old you know liturgy they would, they would write it on tablet, they put it on their heads and on their. I mean, they, you can't. Eighty percent of what I say, eighty percent of what Pastor Derek says, people will forget. And that that hurts us too, because I'm like, well, if they're going to forget 80%, then I'll add 80% more content, and then they won't. But no, it's just I I can't control your brain. The synapses are going to lose it. But you can't become people who forget and then discard what you hear. I'm encouraged if people just take one thing, one thing and change what they're supposed to do. Because you can't afford to leave a place like this making the decision to discard what you hear because it wasn't comfortable or you didn't like it. Or he's getting all up in my business and I don't like how he's saying that. He must be preaching directly to me. He knows something. He wrote that sermon just for me. And I tell people, listen, I was not thinking about you when I wrote my sermon. I was thinking about serving Jesus and hopefully giving his gospel and not tainting it and adding anything to it. I was not worried about you and your brother and what he did last week. And if you think I'm preaching directly to you, that's the Holy Spirit that's talking to you. It's still alive. That's why I, told, I said, don't get mad at me. Sometimes I'll say, like, I, I purposely will say, like, what I'm about to say is offensive. So I'll step to the side and I'll say, get mad at Jesus because this is what he says. You can't you can't leave unchanged. You can't. you got to just take one thing. And then next year say, I'm going to take two things. I'm going to take three things. Don't overwhelm yourself. Don't tell your pastor that tomorrow you're going to wake up at 5 a.m. I'm going to read through the Bible in a week. He said a year. I'm going to do it in a week. No, you're not. Don't. Just don't do that. So you look intently. You continue to do it over and over and over again, no matter if you've heard it before. You don't forget. Don't discard it. And then the simple thing, as he says, he continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but he does it. So here's my big question. People ask me all the time, what am I supposed to do in this situation? What do I, how do I do this? Pastor. And then they would lay on all this stuff and 10 years of ministry. Now there's not much that surprises me anymore. I have a pretty good poker face in ministry. Somebody will tell me some crazy stuff, and I'm like, Lord, please don't make me laugh or cry or get mad or go, what? And so I just keep that on. There's not much that's going to surprise me. But then I tell them, if you're coming to me for any sort of counseling, any sort of advice, we will get the Bible out. And if you don't like that, then please don't come and talk to me. No, sure. sure. oh, no, no, no. I want to know what you're in your professional opinion. That's I am a professional Christian. I have a reverend in front of my name. You're going to get the Bible. That's what's going to happen. And a lot of people won't come. Or in the first session, I'll be like, you know what? Jesus talks about this, husband and wives. And then they'll say, no, we're not talking about the Bible. I said, well, then we're done. Because I'm not going to give you a book. I'm not going to give you a... Say, now, there's books based on Scripture. But people ask me, also, what should I do in this situation? So I tell them, I ask them this question. Insert whatever it is in here. What does the Bible say about blank? Then do it. Oh, Pastor, what does the Bible say about my money? Here's what it says. Then do it. What does it say about relationships and, you know, we're, we're doing this and I'm not sure if it's here's what the Bible says about it. Oh, OK, what should I do? Do it. <laughs> what does it say about unforgiveness? And I, I'm really angry. And they they hurt me 15 years ago in six months and four days at eight o'clock that day. And I'm like, you really are you're keeping a record of wrongs. The Bible says that love doesn't do that. Well, you don't understand I'm like I, I probably don't. I said, but I know in my life, I, we me and my wife make a decision. We do not go to bed angry. As long as it takes, if if there's a an odd or a rift, we don't fight like cats and dogs. I'm just saying, if there's something we disagreed about, I know that that anger will fester overnight. And a little thing will become a big thing really soon. Most of the time, the couples that I meet with, I ask, okay, so I try to get to the real heart. I said, let's go back to the genesis of this. What was the beginning? And sometimes it baffles me. They're like, you know, I don't know when this argument started. He said this about my shoes. And I'm like, when was this? Three years ago. I'm like, and this is, now we're not sleeping in the same room anymore. It's just, you can't let your anger, the Bible even says, don't go to bed angry. Don't let the sun go down your anger. Because then Paul says, you give the devil a foothold. He'll use that anger and he'll pull you apart. What does the Bible say about my relationships? What does it say about being a parent? What does it say about this? What does it say about that? What does it say about my sexuality? What does it say about this? Then I would say, let's find it. And then James says, do it do it. We can hear, we can say, amen. And say, oh, he preached a good word today about sexuality. And the Bible talks about sex a lot. It talks about a healthy view of sex and a healthy view of relationships and marriages. And I'm not afraid to tell that to our people, even to our, I get the privilege to preach to our teenagers twice a month. And I, I tell them exactly what the Bible says, because I'm telling you, the world will tell you whatever you want to hear. I'm going to tell you the truth and you can be as mad at me as you want. I'm saying, but this is the best way And like, well, no, he's just trying to take my fun away. No, he's not. Jesus says, I'll give you life, and I'll give it to you abundantly. It's not to take the fun away. It's to make sure that it's pure and it's exactly what he intended it to be. So I always say, what does the Bible say about blank? Then do it. That's what James says. So here's some open-ended questions. You don't need to answer these out loud. I tell people, please don't answer. Don't raise your hand. Don't nudge your husband or your wife. So I would say, are you a Christian? Then does your life prove it? Do the relationships in your life prove it? Here's an ouch. Does your financial statement prove it? Does your speech prove it? Does your social media profile prove it? Do people even know this about you outside of this room? I remember I'm, I'm still an introvert. It's not like I was an introvert and I became an extrovert. It doesn't happen. But in high school, I hated talking in front of people and then god's like i'm gonna call you to be a pastor i said no you're not he says yes we'll get this together but it took me years to even tell people that i was a christian years and i finally felt the boldness in my junior year of high school and i still have my high school yearbook not to reminisce about the old days i hated high school let's just be honest i don't want to they want to stay i just wanted to get out of there get my diploma and say see you later but I kept my senior year one because I never asked them to, but my friends that, that I had literally came and told them, like, listen, I, I'm, I live my life a little bit differently, and here's what I do. I, I'm, I'm doing this, I believe this, and, all, and, and I thought they would, like, you know, crucify me, and walk me down the hallways of Susquehanna Township High School and hang me in the auditorium. But they just say, hey, that's cool, man. And they were the first people that would come and talk to me if something happened. They were the first people that would ask me, can you just pray about this? Not right now. I don't want to pray right now. That's weird. But can you pray about this? And they would, they, they would ask me things. And then when I was the only one in the, I think it was 470 people in my class that graduated. Now, in our graduation ceremony, it would probably still be going on because of what they did. But every student that walked across, they would say our first, middle, and last name. They would say our GPA in front of everybody. So I felt bad about that for some people. I was fine. But then they would also say the college that you were going to and the things that you wanted to do in life. And I was absolutely scared because I was the only one in that list that had said he's going to Valley Forge Christian College and he's going to study pastoral ministry. And I felt like it was my coming out party. And I, I was like, I'm going to. They, they got through the S's, you know, Spiegelman and then they got to Spanier and I walked across and they said he's going to the Valley Forge Christian College. He's going to start a pastoral ministry. Not a word was said in the room. But then you had to do this big loop around to get back to your seat. And adult after adult after adult would say, man, that is awesome. I'm praying for you. I'm pr- that is so noble. And I didn't do it for that. But, man, I felt like God saw me and said, now, listen, you can make an impact. And then in the yearbook they would say, man, you always stood up for what was right. You know, he didn't laugh at that stuff. He didn't do this kind of stuff. We always could depend on you to be, you know, a constant guy. And I'm saying, it, you don't have to let people know. Don't walk into work tomorrow and stand on the soapbox and preach hellfire and brimstone because they will ask you to leave or probably fire you. But do your coworkers know that you're a Christian on Sundays? Because it really is not about Sunday. This is like the pep talk. This is the huddle to get you ready for Monday through Saturday. Does your life prove? That you're a doer of the word. So like James would probably want us to do. I'll echo the words of Jesus. He says therefore anyone. Who hears these words of mine. And puts them into practice. Is like a wise man. Who built his house. On a rock. The rain came down. The streams rose. And the winds blew. And beat against that house. I'll put a parenthesis in there. Because we think if we become doers of the word. That no storms will come. It says the rain came. The streams rose. The winds blew. And beat against the house. But it did not Fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The same storm came and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. What is Jesus saying? What is James saying? He says, The difference between your life coming crashing down around you and your life standing firm is what you do with the Word of God. Is your life built on the rock? Or is it built on the sand? We look intently. We continue to do it. We don't forget. And what does the Bible say about this? I would simply say, and do it. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful church, this wonderful community of faith here in the heart of Wilmington. God, we are crying out for the souls of wilmington we will keep asking we will keep asking you to send more laborers into the harvest you say that you look out and the fields are ripe but there's not enough people god i pray that you would see our faithfulness here at epiphany and over at new city and all the churches that are around this city are saying enough is enough we are going to proclaim the kingdom of god even if it's not the popular thing to do We are going to love people no matter where they come from, what religious belief they have, what political party they're affiliated with. We're going to look at them as God looks at them. God, I pray that the kingdom of God would come to the city of Wilmington, not because we have cool lights or good songs or great preaching or inclusive spaces, but God, because we are doers of the word. That we will stand for truth even when it's not the popular thing to do. That we will continue to do this. That we will become people of the word so that when a situation comes up, we know what the word says. And that we will do it. I pray a blessing over this church, over its leadership. God, I pray for the things of influence that happen behind the scenes that nobody will ever see. But God, one day they will see because all that hard work behind the scenes, God, it will start and the seeds will begin to grow and things will begin to change. And God, so you're asking us right now, we want to be fruitful, but in this season, we want to be faithful too. We just want to keep doing what you've asked us to do. And God, I pray that the seeds are being planted here in this area and through this ministry and through this pastor and his family. God, I pray that you begin to have those seeds start to bud from the ground to show us that if we don't give up, the harvest will come. And most of all, help us to become doers of the word. We want our lives to be built on the rock. And God, Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict those areas that we think we're building our lives on the rock and it's really on the sand. Show us. As uncomfortable as it might be, show us. Help us to forgive that person. Help us to mend that relationship. Help us to change the way that we look at our finances because they're not really ours anyway. Help us to look at our relationships the way that we parent our children. The way that we interact with our families. Give us new purpose as we walk into work tomorrow. May our light shine in the most effective way possible. Now we want to become doers of the word. We don't want our houses to be built on sand. Because we know that when a storm comes, it's gone. And we'll walk away from the faith. There are too many people that walk away because they just didn't do what God asked them to do. Help us to follow you. Help us to know your will by knowing your word. We pray that in Jesus' name.